the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, as we do a Bible study here that we will do for the next few weeks. We're going to be studying the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at a few verses, reading out loud, and then doing a Bible study. If you need sermon notes, raise your hand. They'll give those to you so that you can follow along a little bit better. We were just in Portugal, and one of the things I was really impressed with was a man that we met there. You've known him. You've met him on a few times. His name is Mark Pereira, and Mark going by Mike or Mark. He's the son-in-law of the Newtons. And we've met him, to had him in our church on a couple times, preaching and teaching. He's Portuguese. He started a, a couple different churches there in Portugal and serving the Lord. But there were some things I learned about his life that impacted me in the sense of just getting to think a little bit clearer that I thought would direct, that God used to direct where we're going this morning. Mark grew up on an island in the Azores. The island he grew up on was like 10 miles long, 3 miles wide. And everybody there was involved in the fishing trade or cattle. His dad happened to be with cattle when they moved there from Canada. Uh, migrated back to Portugal. And his dad was one of those individuals that didn't want to purchase a whole lot of anything. Just kind of lived very simply. No car, no vehicle per se. And, uh, and when Mike was growing up, he and his sister, his dad had this method of teaching the children how to swim by just throwing them in the water and letting them go. Mark didn't do so, fare so well. And became terrified. And never, growing up on an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, he never learned to swim. He had a phobia of water. Now, that just shocked me when I heard about it because I'm thinking everybody who lives on an island must know how to swim. And so only a few years ago, after he had moved away from home and gone through uh, training and was in the university in, in Lisbon, did he think and say, I am going to learn to swim and get over this, that he took swimming lessons. He talked about the swimming lessons. There was him and seven ladies who were all grandmothers, and they adopted him. He loved it. They would bring him food every time that they'd have the class. <laughs> But it impressed me that here is a fella that never learned how to swim growing up on an island. I just assumed everybody would. And then he told me this other story. He said his dad never, never wanted a car on the island, and his dad thought bikes were just an extravagant expense, and so he never got Mike a bike. And Mike never learned to ride a bike. Here he is. He's in his, in his early 30s, and he said, I'm going to do two things in my life. I'm going to learn to swim, and now this next this this last few weeks and these next he's taking lessons on how to ride a bike. And that just struck me that somebody at that point in your life, me, if that were me, I just would never tell anybody and just forget about it and go on in life. But it struck me that I'm making an assumption about a lot of people probably like Mike. I'm assuming somebody on an island, they know how to swim. I'm assuming somebody in Portugal, since that's your typical means of, of transportation, is bicycle. I'm assuming everybody there knows how to ride a bike. And I probably made another assumption that's wrong. That everybody who comes to Faith Baptist Church on a Sunday morning, that they know how to pray. Now, you can get away with swimming, not knowing. You can get away with not knowing how to ride a bike, but you can't get away with not knowing how to pray. So let's do a study for the next few weeks. A study that should help us to understand how to improve our prayer life. Matthew chapter 6. It's a very popular, famous text of scripture, but follow along as I read. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love praise, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they will have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you have shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which sees in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. 
Be ye not therefore like unto them. For your Father knows what things you have need of, even before you ask him. And after this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What I learned from this text is this simple truth. Very profound. God wants us, you and me, to pray effectively. Not just to pray, but to pray effectively. To have power when we pray. To come to him and to make impact when we pray. Not just go through the motions, but really move mountains when we pray. And as we go through the text, let's answer a few questions. Who's supposed to be doing this? Who are the ones that are supposed to have effective prayer times in their life? Well, according to the text, he says it several times. You. You, you. When you pray. It was interesting as I was going through the text. In the original language, when Jesus is speaking in verses 5, 6, and 7, he changes from the singular to the plural. So sometimes he's saying you as an individual. Sometimes he's talking about you as a group. That is the idea of all of you and each of us is supposed to be the individuals involved with praying. In fact, he mentions that again. After this manner, you all, when you pray, pray this fashion. And so the idea very clearly is that all of us, every single one of us, God wants us to have effective prayer lives. Now, you find it interesting that when he's talking, he's talking to an audience bigger than this audience. He's talking to several hundreds of people when he's giving this, this message. When he's speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to people who they pray quite a bit. In fact, if you go into the Jewish life of that day, you would find that they pray before meals and after meals and during meals. They would pray at family gatherings. They had a habit that they would pray three different times of the day. They would pray in their synagogue services. They would pray when they'd have their temple services. And yet he's saying to these people, I want you to pray effectively. I want you to learn how to pray with power and with impact. God wants every one of us to have an effective prayer life. All of us, each one of us, not just again, go through the motions, but to move mountains when we pray. Now, how does that happen? How do we pray effectively? Well, what he does in this passage is he gives us several simple ingredients to having really, really, really good prayer. Real prayer that is moving prayer, that is, that is changing prayer, that is very, very powerful and dynamic. Here's what he's got for us. He makes it clear that we're to pray personally. I've already highlighted that. You, you all, every single one of you. He also says that we're to pray regularly. In verse 9, he says this fact. In verse 10, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, we're to be praying every single day on a regular basis, not just on Sundays, but on Saturdays as well. Even on the days that you go to work, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're supposed to be involved with regular prayer, prayer that is effective. We're supposed to pray as well repeatedly. When he makes this comment, after this manner, therefore, pray and keep on praying over and over and over again is the way it reads in the original. So we're to pray regularly, we're to pray repeatedly, we're also to pray very carefully. That to me is the main thrust of this text. Careful prayer. Effective prayer isn't, isn't just speaking out loud. Effective prayer isn't just cliche phrases. Effective prayer isn't just saying the Lord's Prayer. There is a pattern, there is a method of praying. But before he gets to the method, Jesus deals with something else we need to be careful about. It is the reasons why we pray. The motive for prayer. Why do you pray? Why do you pray the way you pray? 
Well, he's talking to a group of people that they had a variety of reasons why they prayed. These individuals in this text that he's talking to, they prayed regularly, three times a day, before meals, during the meals, after the meals. They would pray whenever the family would get together. They would pray at night as a family. But why did they do that? He is finding fault in the reasons that they prayed and saying, you and I ought not to pray with the same motives they did. What were they? Well, they prayed to impress others. Look at verse 5. We already read it. They pray in the streets. They pray at the marketplace so as to impress other people so that people would be ooing and aahing at their wonderful, elaborate prayers. They would pray to get other people to think that they prayed quite frequently. They would pray in a manner so that others who would be sitting around or standing around hearing them in the synagogue would think, ooh, that person really knows how to pray. Again, it's to pray to impress others. They prayed, they prayed in their manner, in their method of prayer, so as to try to appear very, very spiritual to others. And as well, they wanted to make it look like they were just given to prayer. Now, some also prayed because they were under the impression that if they said their rote prayers, if they said their repetitious prayers in such a fashion, boy, God is going to answer. So they were given to ritualism. They were given to what we put up here that they thought praying itself would make them spiritual. We saw it again, and we'll show you tonight. We saw it again when we were at Fatima, that there are people who will be on their knees and they will pray as they crawl around this huge courtyard. And as they pray through their rosary, as they pray through all their elaborate rituals, they think that's what's going to make them spiritual. Going through an act, going through a church service, going through some type of ritual will make them close to God and Jesus is saying that is not the case. God isn't impressed by your long prayers. God isn't impressed by your, by your spiritual tones and going into that reverential voice when you pray and sounding spiritual and deep. That, that's not what he says God is all about. God is about a relationship where it is you and him talking. You and him getting close. You and him spending time together. You know what I find him interesting in this text? One of the most profound thoughts is Jesus is critical of the way people pray. That sounds, that sounds like, you know, that's really irreverent to criticize somebody who is praying. He says, no, no. As the Son of God, he is critical. He doesn't accept every person's prayer. He is offended by prayer that is given for the wrong reason, the wrong motive. In fact, let's make this statement. That is a scary statement. Even when we are involved in the most intimate relationship possible with God, you and him talking, you and him spending time together, you praying, you can offend him. He can be very, very put off by your prayers. Wow. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be as the play actors. Don't be as the hypocrites. Don't be as those people who they pretend that they are given to prayer, but they're not. Who pray really long and elaborate prayers because they think God is going to hear them for their much speaking. He's not. In fact, God isn't even impressed. He's, he's gagged. He's offended by it. That should scare you and me who are born-again believers, to say, I do not want to offend God when I pray, why I pray. I better pray effectively in a pattern and in a way that he approves of because I come to him on his terms. And I better examine the way I have been praying 
And I better evaluate, has my prayer life become very blasé and mundane so to the point that God is not impressed or impacted or, worse yet, he is offended by the way I pray and what I pray for and why I pray. So we look at them and we say, okay, we've got to be careful about our motives for praying. And we need to make sure that our motives fit this passage of Scripture. Why do you pray? Here's some good reasons that you should be praying. Well, Jesus commands it. We already saw that down in verse 9. After this manner, he says in the imperative mood, pray this way. He commands it. In fact, he not only commands it, but if you go back up to verses 5, 6, and 7, he assumes you will pray when you pray. Not even commanded then. It's assumed you're going to do it on a regular basis. So those are good reasons why we should pray. Good reason, he invites us to pray. He encourages us to pray. Good reason, God's going to respond to it. Your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward the opening. It's a way to get answers from God. That's a good reason for prayer. By the way, the good reason, this is where the real action is. When you are praying, that's where the real action is. There's, a, there's an episode, I told you about this years ago. There's an episode in The Lone Ranger where Tonto and The Lone Ranger are pictured on the TV program at two different places. Tonto is talking inside this little village with a monk that's in charge of the village. And he's just returned some, some funds or something to the monk. And he's talking to him and the monk priest says, Tonto, is there anything I can do? And Tonto speaking in his Indian talk that I cannot mimic or mock. Tonto says, no, Kimosabi, there's... Oh, no, Kimosabi is Lone Ranger. No, preacher. There is nothing to do. Just... Do you know what he tells him? No, you can't do anything. Just pray. As if that's not the most important thing. And immediately the program switches to showing... There's the Lone Ranger riding on... Silver, you got it. Okay, some of you know where we're going here. And he is going on, and he's after the outlaws because he is the man of action. He is where it's all taking place. And he yells out, Hi! Yeah, I knew I'd wake some of you up that way. Okay. Yeah. And so the point of the program is, what they're saying is, the real action is where the Lone Ranger is, not where the praying takes place. I differ with that. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, I know what Scripture says. I know there was a battle taking place with the Amalekites down below, but the real action was when Moses was praying. Hands up or hands down? When his hands were up in prayer, there was, there was the battle going their, their way, and victory was secured. When he wasn't involved in prayer, there was defeat on the horizon. I know that prayer is where the real action takes place. You ever read through Ephesians 6? It's talking about the believer's armor. It talks about us wrestling. And we're wrestling not against you know, the kings and princes of this world, but we're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we would all say there is wickedness in high places. And he says we're wrestling. And then he says to get where the action is, you need to put on the what? The believer's armor. The whole armor of God. You're right. And he describes the helmet, the breastplate, the shield, and everything. Then he concludes with verse 18. I think the mo one of the most important parts of that whole passage. It's basically the leather straps that brings everything, binds it together, that secures everything. And he says, with all prayer and supplication, praying always. And he wraps up that whole believer's armor saying, you can go out with the equipment but you've got to have prayer to secure it all. That's where the real action is. And so Jesus is telling them, you've got to pray. Pray where the real action is. Can I throw this thought to you? There is no defense against your prayers. Now, you can go to work, 
And you can live a godly testimony. You can be a person of integrity, a person who is working hard. They, and those folk may mock you. They may resist you. They may reject you. They may find fault in your life. And they may put away or put off your testimony that way. But they can't put off or put away your prayers. You can give out a tract and somebody may throw it down. But they can't throw down your prayers. You can talk to a backslider and say, hey, you need to come to church so you can hear the word of God. And they may, they may say, nope, I'm not interested. But they can't reject your prayers. Your prayers are a powerful weapon. They can move heaven. They can move hell. They can move mountains. You, as you pray, can make a difference for somebody for eternity. You, as you pray, can make a difference for somebody when it comes to the rewards in heaven. You, as an individual, can reach anywhere, everywhere, anytime, all places around this world in your prayer life. It has got better coverage than ATT, Verizon, and Sprint put together. God's got it all covered when you pray. It is amazing how you're impacting your prayer life can be. In fact, there is unlimited power to your prayers. And so God says, I want you to pray. I will reward it. You're close by. you got your fingers in Matthew 6. Let's go to the rest of his message. Watch what he says about prayer in chapter 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be Open to you. For everyone that asks, receives. He that seeks, finds. To him that knocks, it shall be opened. And he goes on, talks about God is so gracious. God does only good for us. He doesn't give us a stone when we ask for bread. He's not into that trickery. God's not like this. Now hold your finger here. And you've got to jump with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I want you to see the context and the text of Jesus talking to his inner circle. It is the night before he is going to die. He is giving last minute instructions there in the upper room. And he gets into prayer. He tells them, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God believe in me. I'm the way, the truth, and life. After he has expressed all that, he is going to talk about how they can have their, their hearts secured and how they will be able to be strong. Go down to verse 13. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that... Do you have it in chapter 14, verse 13? Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. If you shall ask anything in my name... I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, keep that in mind. He's just given them promises of answered prayer. Go to the previous verse. Go to chapter 14. Go down to verse 12. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me, the works that I do shall, he shall do also. And, not only that, but what does he promise? Greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Right on the heels of that, whatsoever you shall ask. Prayer can help you to be able to experience in your life even the great, the great changes, the great impact that Jesus had in his ministry. Jesus isn't trying to keep his ministry to him alone. He says, I'll share with you. I'll let you see greater works, greater impact. I had 12 when I was done. Maybe 500 that were, that were on, the, on, the, on the fringe of following me. And then my ascension brought them together. You can impact even more people, greater works. Why? How? Through prayer. So prayer is so powerful. But here's a question that comes up to my mind. Now, none of you would think these goofy things. I do. When I read Matthew chapter 6, you know, I know about prayer and I understand about prayer, but then there's a verse that bothers me. 
Okay? And, and it gets me to say, well, wait a minute, why do we even bother? When he says, okay, in this passage, that our Father, verse 8, be not like unto those, you know, the, the hypocrites when they pray, for your Father knows what things you have need of when? Before we ask. So my goofy mind says, why bother asking? He already knows. He promised he's going to meet. So why should I pray if God already knows what I need? Why should I do that? If he says he's going to meet all my needs, and I will provide for all the... And if he says he wants to see people saved, what, what difference if I pray or not? There is a difference. And there is an impact for why we pray. Let me, let me think this through with you for a minute. We should pray because it's the right thing to do. Okay, It's commanded. Why do we do it? Because God told us to do it. That makes it, even if he knows what he's going to do, even if he knows our needs, he told us to ask him. He told us to come, so in obedience to God, to fulfill what he has asked us to do, we should pray. There's another reason. And I think it goes back to what you do in your families. What you do with your younger brothers and sisters. What you do with your children. You teach them that even though you might have that candy bar in your hand and you're going to give it to them, you tell them and teach them that they should do what? No. You say to them what? Use your words and ask. Right? Well, maybe some of you don't, but you should. Okay. You teach them to ask. You teach them to, do, to say things out of respect. And to say, please may I, please can I have whatever. And so it's a matter of real respect for you and I as children to go to the Father and politely, reverentially, respectfully ask Him. It is proper because it's commanded. It is appropriate because this is a matter of respecting God and not just, listen, not presuming upon God. You get offended when people just presume upon you. You don't like it when they just expect you to do something and they don't even ask and they don't even thank you. You get bugged. Your father says, I want communication. I want respectful communication. And I'm asking you to pray. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing before you know it and what I'm doing, but I want you to use your words and to ask and to show me respect. Let's add to that. When we pray, that helps you and me. It not only moves in the heavenlies, it moves in our hearts and in our minds. It reminds us that we are dependent upon God. That it's not just my job. It's not just my country. It's not just my savings. It's not just my school. It's God that I need to be relying upon. So we go to him on a daily basis to be reminded how much we need him through the day. To help us to work. To help us to study. To help us to be wise as parents. To help us to forgive others. We need him. And so this is a practical way of reminding us of our weakness and his greatness by us coming to him. Our prayer time helps us to conform to him. You know, it's like sitting down and talking with your fellow employees. You can be doing a project, you can be doing some work, and you can all be working against each other unless you sit down as a staff, get together and compare and say, okay, where are we all going? You can be real busy, 
but you're not being productive. And so prayer is getting together with your spiritual staff of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and them being able to give you direction and helping you to be able to communicate with them so your mind comes in mind with them. So your thoughts become their thoughts. So your desires become their desires. It is a way for you and I to conform, like your friendships. Your friendships grow because you sit down and you talk, and you find out, okay, how to treat one another a little bit better in your relationship as a family. You talk about what is expected, what is even better. You could do this better, you could do that better, so as to enhance the experience as a family community to make it even more peaceful. You do that. Well, God says, I want to have conversation with you. And when I have conversation with you, you and I, we, we all of a sudden, our minds become in tune with one another. Let's throw this down. There is always the benefit of fellowship time with God. It is always good. It is always fun just to be able to sit and talk with God. Our missionaries that we visited and the ones that the teens visited in Arizona, the, the email that I got last night from those in Arizona, the comment and the comments I got from the missionaries, they said what was so good about the trip was just the fellowship. That spending time that you cared, that you, you as a church were interested in them. God is thinking the same thing when you take time for prayer. It's just good for you and him to sit and talk, renew, refresh, and spend time together. Now we said you need to be careful about your motives for prayer. Let's talk about being careful in the way you pray. Not why, but the way you pray. How you pray. The manner in which you pray. That's what verses, oh let's see, we jump down to verse 9. 9, 10, 11, 12. They're getting into the manner, the procedure. How do you pray? Now, this is very important. It is very important, and not everybody does it right. Again, I'm going to refer back to our experience this past week in Portugal. We learned something. That in the Portuguese culture, their school system quite, isn't quite as advanced as the United States. That's no surprise. They only started public education about 50, 60 years ago. And then it was only up to fourth grade. Now they've advanced it. But there's an element of the, of the education taking place in most of central Portugal, Portugal that you would find uh, interesting and kind of, uh, kind of amazing. They're, the peoples there in that central part where we were at, they're, for the most part, not real good at spelling. When, uh, when Newtons or others go someplace and they say, okay, here's what I, let me give you my email address. He said, it always takes a long time. Wait, 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 wait. What was that? And very methodical and slow in getting it over. When you're giving your name, it's very, it catches them. The Newtons say, you know, my name is Newton. Okay. It's spelled N-E-W-T-O-N. He said, every time I do that, it's like, wait, 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 wait. What was that again? N-E-W-T-O-N. And e, there's a reason why. They have no spelling in the school. There's no class for spelling. There's no spelling bees. There's no phonetic reading. You learn words by rote memory, and so it's difficult. Okay? You take spelling out of a culture, it's really, really much more difficult. So we knew that we found that out. We decided we needed to torture Pastor Mike. He's Portuguese. The way to torture him is to do a song. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. And then what happens? O B E D E, And he's going... I'm serious. The jerking and everything was just... 
so then some of the kids got even ruder. I wouldn't do this, but some of the kids got even ruder. Uh, we're in the van, he's driving, and we decided to sing, I love him better every... I, I mean, the, the, the vehicle's going, you know, down the road. I love him better every D-A-Y, close by his S-I-D-E, I will, A-B-I-D-E, I love him better every... The guy was almost going off the road. So, let's do it backwards. I love him better every... Y-A-D, I love him better every Y-A-D, close by his E-D-I-S, I will, E-D-I-B-A, I love him better every Y-A-D. The poor guy just well, had to pull over. Okay. He's not good at spelling. We loved it. It was torture. We had a ball. Okay. Now, Jesus is dealing with people in this text who aren't good prayers. He doesn't, in graciousness and kindness, he doesn't mock them like we did. But he's going to give them instruction. Now, it's not that they didn't do the thing of prayer, but they weren't good prayers. They just weren't. They weren't good because they thought long, elaborate prayers were the thing. They thought if the, the louder they spoke, they would get God's attention. The longer they spoke. They thought their much speaking was what it was about. And they improvised by putting in canned prayers. They had prayers for meals, prayers for going to bed. They had prayers for the worship service. They had their Our Fathers, their Hail Marys. They had their prayers of, the, of that time period. They had prayers that were rote prayers. And Jesus is going to speak to them and say, Now listen, when you pray, that's not the way you pray. And he's going to even, he's going to even criticize their prayers. He says, you do it for, in verse 5, you know, long prayers for impressing. And he's going to make a comment, he says in verse 7, don't use vain repetitions. Don't pray canned prayers. That's not what impresses me. I'm going to give you a pattern for prayer. Now, the idea, the model that he gives them, is not a prayer to pray. That's the irony of this whole passage. The irony of the text is the passage that he gave as a pattern has become one of the most canned, used canned prayers in our society. But it was never intended that way. How do I know that? Because he says in this text, okay, here, pray after this fashion. There is a parallel text. Luke chapter 11. When the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. But it's different. It's the same thing but different. The phrases are different. The content is different. So which one is it? If we're going to do memorized prayers, is it Luke 11 or Matthew chapter 6? It was never designed to be either one. It was designed to just give you an idea of what should be involved when you pray, not a prayer to use. In fact, he's criticized in verse, six, uh, verse 7. He's criticized repetitive, memorized prayers. He says, that's not the way I want. And you're, you, the disciples say, okay, teach us to pray, not what to pray. Just, just teach us, not a prayer, but give us the idea of how we should pray. You have as well this fact. Never in the New, excuse me, never in the New Testament beyond this passage do you find the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer ever prayed or repeated. It was not designed to be a prayer that we pray to get away with prayer time. But what it does teach us in this text is several things. Number one, he says in this text, here's what we've got to understand. He never deals with the time of the day. Don't get hung up on this. Don't get hung up on the Bible and say, oh, wait a minute. That um, to pray effectively, it has to be before 8 a.m. Why? God's too busy after that time? 
Well, it has to be after 9 p.m. Why? The lines are free? I mean, it might be 9 p.m. here, but it's different time elsewhere. God in the Bible, he has given us all kinds of illustrations of different times of the day that people pray. There is no one set time of the day that we're supposed to be praying. We are to pray at a regular basis at all times, and we can pray at all times or we can pray at any time. So he doesn't deal with the idea, he doesn't deal with a time to pray. He doesn't deal with a posture. Okay, if I pray with my body turned a certain way, if I pray with, you know, my hands held a certain way, God's going to hear me better. Okay, that's not true. You go through the Bible, you have all kinds of postures of people praying. He doesn't deal with that. He doesn't deal with that, those situations. You can pray in bed, you can pray standing up, you can pray driving, I advise keep your eyes open. You can pray... Yeah, when you're, when you're at work, as long as you're doing your work, you can pray at any time. You can pray in any posture. That's not the issue. Now, the question that he's going to deal with is more about the place. Now, I understand. You can pray in a boat. Lord, help me. You can pray in the water. Lord, save me. You can pray in a temple. You can pray in a synagogue. You can pray in a garden. You can pray on the battlefield. You can pray in any different location. Now, that's not what he's going to say. He's not going to give a specific. But he's going to talk about and say, but I want you, you who are working to improve your life, to target something in your own life. A time, a posture, and a place that works for you. And that's where he gives this, uh, this idea. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray standing in the corners. Da, 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 da. But verse 6, when you pray, enter into your closet. Now, some of us, that would be difficult. Too many shoes, okay? You couldn't get inside of it, okay? The, uh, the, the idea here is the war room, okay? Did any of, you, any of you see the film? Yes? Okay, it's that concept, is pick a location. Pick some spot that's semi-private for you. A spot where you can get away. And you have this spot that works for you. Some of you have said your best closet is the water closet. Okay. If that works, okay? It could be your bedroom. It could be the dining room table. It could be where nobody else, moms, probably nobody else will bother you if you go where the laundry is. They'll stay away from that room, okay? It's some place where you can pray and get alone. And to pray more effectively, here's what we're saying. When it comes to impacting your prayer life, number one, have a retreat. A place and a time where you meet God that fits your schedule, that works on your daily routine, where you say, this is what he's getting at, a retreat, a time with you and God alone. It usually doesn't work in the middle of the living room when TV's on. It usually doesn't work in the middle of the dining room when there's all kinds of activity taking place. He is saying more or less that what we should do is get alone. Find a personal alone time, time and place with God. Now, is he, com is he condemning? public prayer. Is he condemning group prayer? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. Don't respond and say, Jesus is saying we should never pray as a group. If that's the case, he's contradicting himself. Did Jesus ever pray with his fellows? Yeah, there's several times where Jesus prayed in the upper room, in the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. 
Okay, he prayed. There's in the, in the Gospels, he encouraged where two or three are gathered. There's time for group prayer. There's no, there's no condemnation here of group prayer. That's not the point. The, the Bible gives us many illustrations of getting together, we in the church service. We pray together with one of us leading in prayer. Nothing wrong with that. We do Wednesday night prayer and we'll, we'll be gathered together and some of you two or three are, are moving around. Some will pray out loud. There's no condemnation. That's not what he's saying in this text is wrong. What he's saying in this text is if that your prayer at those moments is to impress others or if that's the only prayer you have, then it's not, then it's not impacting. Then it's not impressive to God. If you're praying on Wednesdays to give the sense to everybody else how much you pray, then you're doing it for show. You're offensive, offensively praying. What he's talking about here is getting a time and a place alone. A private time. A place where you can focus without distractions. Where you can talk to God. Where you can have that moment, that time, and be candid and not have to worry about somebody eavesdropping as you unbear your burdens, as you talk about your struggles and your battles. It's a place where you show to God that you really want time with Him alone. That he's important to you. That he is precious to you. I was reading an account of a story of an individual. His name is Jack. Jack grew up in a small community in the Midwest. Jack went through the normal things as growing up. But he had something special happen in his life. His father passed away when he was young. It was a traumatic time. But Mr. Bessler lived next door. He was an old man. His children were all gone out of the area. And he basically came into Jack's life... And spent time with Jack. Through Jack's later elementary years and through his high school years, Mr. Bessler showed real interest in Jack's life. Jack eventually graduated, went off to college a distance, and then once at college got interested in everything else. You know, girls, wife, career, his own family. He's living far away from his hometown. He gets a phone call from his mom one day, and she said, Jack, just calling to let you know, Mr. Bessler... He was really sick. I told you about that in our last conversation. And he says, yeah, I know, Mom. Well, he died. Jack was real silent. Mom said, Jack, you hear me? Yeah. I remember Mr. Bessler. He did a lot. Man, I, I don't think I've seen him for the last few years. Last time I was there, I should have visited him again. Jack said, Mom, when's the funeral? She says, this coming Wednesday. So he cleared off his calendar. He flew home. And they go to the service. There's hardly anybody there. Mr. Bessler's an old man. Family's all gone and distance. His, his own, he only had a couple kids and they've passed away. And so hardly a handful of people at the funeral. After the service, Mom and Jack went over towards Mr. Bessler's house. Mom had a key. And they entered into the house. And Jack just shocked. He says, man, it looks exactly like it did years ago. I remember that place. I remember, and, and as they walked through the house, huh, that's the bench where he taught me how to, how to drill and saw wood. Oh, that's where he taught me how to paint. Oh, that's where he taught me how to do this, that, and he's, you know, electrical projects. And he's thinking as he's going through this, memories, going through the house, how many things Mr. Bessler had done for him and how impacting it was. They walk all the way around the house. They come back and they enter into the den. And Jack stops. Mom says, what's wrong? It's gone. What's gone? The box. Jack, what do you mean? 
There was, a, there was a little golden box that he always kept on his desk. I asked him once, I asked him a thousand times, what's in the, in the box? And Mr. Bester says, it's the most important thing in my life. And Jack would say, yo, what is it? What is it? I'll tell you someday. It's the most cherished thing in my life. The thing I appreciate most in my life. <laughs> never told him. Now the box is gone. And Jack is like, I'll never know what that was that Mr. Bester said was the most important thing. Jack says goodbye to mom, returns home, and about a week later, when he gets home, there's a note from the, from the post office. It says, try to deliver a box. Nobody was home to sign for it. You must come to the post office. He goes to the post office in a couple days, not really impressed or you know, feeling much obligation. And you're, you're figuring it out already. He gets there, and he picks up the package, opens it up, and it's the gold box. Somebody, somebody somewhere had followed the directions. There was that note still on the outside of the gold box that said, when I die, send this to Jack, gave his name and his address. It's for him. Now Jack is unsure. Should I open it? Shouldn't I open it? Yeah. And he opens it up. And what he finds inside kind of surprised him. The small key was taped to the letters, hearts racing, as tears filled his eye. He unlocked the box. There inside, he found a beautiful gold pocket watch. Running his finger slowly over the finely etched casing, he unlatched the cover of the watch. Inside, he found these words engraved, Jack, thanks for being my friend, Harold Bessler. That which was most precious was Jack taking time for this old man. God is not an old man, but what's most precious to God is you. You taking time to sit and talk with him, to sit and commune with him, to sit and learn from him. And some of you are not doing it. You're too busy. The phone rings, you'll run to it. The text bings, and you'll make sure you have time for it. But what about God? God loves you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to enjoy you. And you learn to enjoy fellowship with him. So he says, here, I want you to learn about prayer. I want you to spend time with me, talking to me. Pray to me. Every day. Take a few minutes every day. Sit in the quietness of your house, your home, your car, your office. Talk to me. And I'll talk to you. And we'll spend time together. Don't, don't go about acting like you're spiritual. Don't go about acting like you're Christian. Don't go about acting like this is something you've got all put together if it's not true. Spend time with me. I encourage you. I invite you. Commit yourself this week to effective prayer time. What I mean by that is do actually spend some time this week praying every day. Pray by yourself. Get alone just for several 10 minutes a day. Start off with that and pray to the Lord. Get that place, that time, and do it every single day this week. Talk to the Lord. Spend time with him. I started off telling you about a man that I've learned to admire. 
that said, I missed out on some things that most people have, swimming and bike riding. And I'm old, older than most in learning, but they're important. They're important in my culture and in my life, and I'm going to learn how at an older age. No matter how old you are in the Lord, God wants you to learn to pray. And the best way to learn is to do it.